Our text this morning is going to be from the seventh chapter of Isaiah. And you may want to turn there, and then while you're turning there, then uh, I'm going to read a passage from the sixth chapter of uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Sermon on the Mount. So Isaiah, the seventh chapter, I'm going to reflect on a few verses on chapter one. Uh, we'll be reading out of the sixth chapter of Matthew, and then we will go to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. I do want to mention to you, uh, Danny Aliwine got to come home, and he is at home. He's stronger. He's feeling better. Uh, he's, they've got some hope, and uh, so we continue to pray for the Aliwine family. Uh, Melanie is still at home, healing and getting better. And I think she'll be back with us pretty soon. We've got some great workers and servants at this church and, and a lot of folks that do a lot of things here that you may not be aware of that are really integral to uh, just the function, the daily things that we uh, may take for granted around here. We've got a lot of really great servants here. She's certainly one of them, and we've missed her, and a lot of folks have filled in for her, and, and, but hopefully she'll be back pretty soon. And then finally, I want to say Cora, uh, younger and uh, uh, you know, she and her family have been a part of this congregation for many, this community and this congregation for many years. And uh, Tammy and I will have been here, December will be three years. And uh, during that period of time, uh, we have been blessed in, in a lot of ways. And one of the most significant ways are just um, the people that we've encountered in this church and this community. And Cora is one of those folks. I mean, um, we're losing a generation of people. Uh, those generations that are in their 70s and 80s and 90s and uh, that have lived lengthy lives and have contributed so much to their families, the community, uh, the local congregations, churches, and they're givers. I think more than anything, that, that generation, uh, if you were to say anything generationally about them, uh, that they were givers, and uh, you know this this community certainly has a lot of those folks. So keep all those people in your prayers. Uh, that last verse that Josh just read, and Josh, good job, man. Uh, it said, "And and Saul, the king of Israel, and all the Israelites were dismayed, and they were greatly afraid. They feared much." Um, in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches uh, in, in verse 25. Um, at beginning of verse 25, he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious, fearful, worried for your life as uh, to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, uh, nor for your body or to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and a body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap or, uh, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, are you not much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? And why are you... Uh, why are you anxious? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like 
one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is uh, alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, um, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things, for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And then finally, therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will, um, tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We've been in our study of Isaiah. And the passage I'm going to read in the seventh chapter of Isaiah is a, it is a very graphic, prophetic picture of God's children, his nation, his people, his kingdom, his bride. All of those are terms. And those terms are applicable to you and I today. We're his children. We're his kingdom. We're his nation. We're his bride. And so you've you got to go back 26, over 2,600 years to, to this point, the seventh chapter in Isaiah. But the message, the prophetic message to the people then certainly applies uh, doctrinally, biblically, theologically. The principles are still the same. The picture, the picture that Isaiah reveals in this historical moment is, is a pretty discouraging picture. Now, all of Scripture, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, old preacher to young preacher, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all Scripture is God-inspired, all of it. And he was specifically talking about the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament hadn't even been written. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, all scriptures got inspired for teaching, reproof, rebuke, for the equipping of, uh, of an individual to really to serve God. All of it's God inspired, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so one of the things that should happen, really should happen, is when you read God's word, it is a very specific, very honest, very true, very clear picture of many things, many things that are true, but it's a picture that you can apply to your life individually. You could apply it to your marriage. You could apply it to uh, a nation. You certainly could apply it to the church, but it's a measuring strip. It's a measuring rod. You can be able to read it and whatever the moment is or the circumstance or the history is or the moment is, there's an applicable lesson there that applies to you and I. That's the truth today. It is, when we read this passage in the seventh chapter, this very discouraging passage, God's people are in, it's not good. The best you could say about it is it's not good. I think that it pained Isaiah to, I really do, to write and to communicate and to preach the message that we're going to read. It's a short passage of Scripture. But as the Scripture, the prophetic word of Isaiah reveals the problem, he had already given you the root of the problem. 
So for you and I to understand and clearly see the lesson, the personal lesson in Isaiah 7 and apply it to ourselves, we got to go back to the three problems that existed that he identified in the first chapter. So in the first chapter of Isaiah, uh, beginning in verse 2, uh, Isaiah, and this is poetic, by the way, he uses poetic in him throughout his prophetic writing to teach. But verse 2, he says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up. These are his children, but they have revolted against me. So the very first problem of God's people that are going to give you the, <laughs> that are going to very clearly reveal the personal problem of the nation and the people of God was it goes back, these are people that had revolted. Now, you continue reading chapter 1. These people were Bible reading, praying, going to synagogue, observing the national, the biblical required festivals of God's word. These, these were church-going folks. And, and Isaiah says to the church-going folks, God's children, kingdom, nation, bride, you've revolted against me. Verse 4, alas, sinful nation. Sinful nation. God's people. As we revolt, we, we're certainly sinful. Sinful people weighed down with iniquity. Not just sinful people, but sinful people weighed down with iniquity. You know, Paul would say, he, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he would say, I have to die to sin daily. He would say about himself, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. So we'll make a connection, but right here, the prophet is saying, you're a sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, uh, they have abandoned the Lord. So the first problem was, God's people, religious people, church-going folks, Bible-reading folks, praying folks had revolted, and then they had abandoned. And then in verse 5, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? So the picture in the first chapter, the prophetic word to God's people, was you have revolted, and by the way, if you continue reading verse 3, it says, my people don't understand. There's always a correlation between in, as we revolt against God and our understanding. That's a powerful equation there. There's that measuring rod. Uh, there's maybe several reasons that we don't understand. Uh, the scripture would say, my people perish for a lack of understanding. So I want to challenge you first and foremost. Uh, why, why do you not, why would you not, why would I not? Why would anyone not understand something? We say we don't understand. Maybe we don't understand because we're young. You know, we just haven't lived long enough. It takes a little living to understand things. So we may, we're in a growing process. Maybe we don't understand because we're not putting the energy and the effort and the time to understand. That's probably the main reason we... Maybe we don't understand because to understand something challenges me. It challenges me at my very core to take something seriously. If you want to understand something, if you really want to understand it, 
you have to take it seriously. You really do. Maybe that's why we don't understand. But so when we revolt, we don't understand. When we abandon, we turn away from God. In fact, when we abandon, we despise. The scripture says we despise the Holy One of God. Have you ever despised God? Maybe you never really thought about that. Jeremiah would cry out, uh, challenged to be a prophet of Israel. Um, he would say, curse be the day I was born. God, you have become like a deceptive stream to me. It would have been better had I not been born. I don't know if you've ever been there. And then this final one again, rebellion. Rebellion. The description of rebellion is someone that's been, you're, you're, you're going to be stricken. You're, you're, you're constantly taking hits. Have you ever known somebody that is constantly taking hits? Their life is so, there's so much drama in their life. They just, just, they're constantly hitting and getting hit. And they're Christians. And it's like they don't understand. And there's always conflict. And they're always mad at somebody. And then sickness. Your whole head is sick. Your whole heart is faint. From the sole of your foot even to the head. There's nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. So the picture is we know what revolting is, what it looks like. We know what abandoning is and what it looks like. And we know what rebellion is and we know what it looks like. Now go to the seventh chapter of Isaiah. Because this is a dismal picture. And then I want you, before we leave here today, measure your own life. I was taught in, in uh, my time in the College of Biblical Studies as a minister, as you go to a church, the very, one of the very first things that you do is you do an assessment based upon uh, the church, A to Z, top to bottom, uh, on this, those three standards. Is the, church, is the church revolting? And in what area? They may only be revolting in one area. You know, all you got to do is revolt in one area. Revolt against an instruction of God. You can do the same in a marriage. You, where there's a problem in a marriage or there's a problem in a church or there's a problem in a Christian life or a Christian family, there's some form of revolting going on. There's some instruction of God that one or two or several or more, whether it's the marriage or the church or the family, they're revolting. Because maybe they don't understand. Because they don't want to understand. There's that one. There's an area in, in a church that where maybe there's a faction of a church that are, they've abandoned. Now they come to church, but they've abandoned. They have abandoned. And it's obvious. The measuring rod, the, the prophetic word, uh, they've abandoned. There's something. Even though they're present, they've abandoned. Some area they've abandoned the Holy One of Israel. And then a rebellion. 
That's just so you'll find the sickness in a church. You'll find the, the spiritual sickness in a church where there's rebellion going on. Rebellion uh, against one another, members. Rebellion against uh, some faction of the church. All, always rebelling against the Word of God. So now, you get to Isaiah 7, and I want you to think about that. Now, here's what's going on. The glory days of, of, of David and uh, King David and King Solomon, they are long gone. The children of Israel, Moses led them out of Egyptian captive, uh, captivity. They went across, you know, they ultimately after 40 years, they end up in the promised land and they have judges and, and then, then now they have kings. And, but those days, those glory days are over. And Isaiah is the prophet. And he, re, he, he speaks and writes in verse 1, chapter 7. Now, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, uh, that Rezan, Rezan, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Now, biblical principle number one, though, highlight this in your Bible, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, uh, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people, highlight this, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. God's people. They've got enemies. This is a national crisis. And their hearts... And the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Preacher... Prophet, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, this king that you serve under. You go out, meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir, uh, Jeshub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool uh, on the highway to the fuller's field. Now, I could just preach one sermon on that statement. That is full of all kinds. That geographical information there is full of all kinds. That's maybe two or three sermons all of it itself. There's no random event in the Bible. There's no random moment in the Bible. There's no comma, uh, apostrophe, uh, periods that are random in the Bible. There's nothing. So even here, this, this, but that's another sermon from another day. He said, this is the geographic area you go. Take your son with you and say to him, take care and be calm. Highlight this. Take care and be calm. Have no fear. We just read about the nation of Israel. Saul in this Goliath. And Monty, beautiful prayer. I love Paul's use of the Psalm, the 18th Psalm this morning. Don't believe in coincidence, but God is having to tell through the prophet, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. You want, listen, here's the first measuring rod in your Christian life. Jesus, I just read the section out of Matthew. Jesus said, don't be afraid of anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Nothing. I, I, I wrote this quote down. I said, there's not much more disheartening and discouraging than a fearful child of God. There's not much, right before I got up here, and I just wrote it down, more disheartening and discouraging than a fearful child of God. 
How much fear? How much fear do you have in your life? What is it that brings fear to your life? Why are you fearful? Why? Are you, are you worried about what's happening in our country? Are you afraid that we may become a socialist country? I'm on social media. I like having some fun with that. I think we live in tumultuous times. I think if we're true to history, we may live in some of the most politically tumultuous times in the history of our nation. And we may. Are you afraid of that? Are you afraid of what's happening on the global stage? My father and I visited recently, and he said he remembered as a young boy, he listened to Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, on the radio broadcast after Pearl Harbor. He remembers that graphically. They were in their home together. Um, and uh, he said, you know, we weren't really sure we were going to win that war. Maybe you're afraid of that. Maybe you're afraid of someone in your life. I don't know. Maybe you're afraid of death. The Apostle Paul would say, about death, he would say to the Corinthians, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? Paul would write to the Philippians. He would say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living, I'll serve him. If I die, I'm going to go be with him. But you can tell, and I promise you, measuring rod number one, if, if there is revolt, rebellion, and abandonment going on in your life, you're afraid of something. Now, I mean that. You just look at the great pictures. That story of Moses and Zipporah in Scripture, it's a great story. God had called Moses. He had assured Moses. He could, spoke to him through this, this burning bush, this, this graphic picture in time and history that most of us supernaturally, we couldn't even imagine. And yet here he is. He's still afraid. He's still worried. He's still scared. And Zipporah has to scall him. And, and the scripture says God was ready to kill him. Fear. Fear. Every time you and I are engaged as a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, if you have been, if, you, if, if God has saved you and given you his Holy Spirit, and you and I are in fear of something, if we are like, if we become like this withering these trees that shake as the trees in the forest with the wind. There's something, and I'm just going to say it, and this is where personal examination needs to come into play. There's something that I am in revolt, I'm abandoning, or I'm in rebellion to God. There's something I don't understand. There's something that's missing. You look at the great story of Caleb and Joshua. They've been going to spy out the land. Twelve spies. And only two came back and said, surely the giant, well, but he's, oh, this is a man, this is a land flowing with curds and milk and honey and all these wonderful things, but there's giants in the land. Oh, God, there's giants in the land. And only Caleb and Joshua had the faith and the courage. You know the story of David. All the nation of Israel saw they were in fear. And he said, and David goes, who is this? Who is this that mocks the armies of the living God? 
Who is the son circumcised? There was nothing in his life. David wasn't revolting. He had not abandoned. He was not in rebellion to God. He was, he was a young teenage boy. He was a young teenage shepherd out there, Jace. He's just raising his father's sheep. And he had seen, God gave me victory over the bear and the wolf and the lion. It doesn't matter. God gave me victory. And this, I'm not going, what should I fear? How could I fear? What should I fear? What should I be in fear of? Are these people... They were in fear. And I'm going to tell you, God's people, his nation, could only have been in that kind of fear. God's preacher, God's Christian, God's Christian uh, church can only live in fear when we're revolting, abandoning, or rebelling against God. It's a biblical principle. And so you keep reading. And he says, and say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these uh, two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and uh, uh, the son of Remaliah. The scriptural biblical word was, you don't need to be afraid of these people. Why would you? I don't know what's going to happen in America. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to go full-blown socialist. I don't know. I know that what is happening in this country is not what the founding father has had in mind. I know there was never a thought, a moment, it couldn't have been in their mind where they would say at some point this country, the lawmakers of this country would decide that it would be okay to kill, to kill an unborn baby, living child in the womb of that mother and call it choice. They never believed that. And it's just a daily, daily murder factory. Our founding fathers never thought that. Does that scare you? It should anger you. There is, we do have the right. The scripture said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the scripture is there. What does that mean? Two things. I, I shouldn't just be consumed by anger, but I should be angry. And Satan is his minion is the reality of spiritual warfare and the darkness of men. And I should understand it in light of my own life. I should be angry at myself when I pray, fall victim to that. But our founding fathers never envisioned it. Our founding fathers never, never could they have conceived that the laws of this country would take a position against the holy writ of Scripture. And if they're teaching you anything else in school, it's a God-forsaken, demonic, evil lie. This country was based upon biblical principles. The men and women who founded this country, blessed by God, God giving His sovereign grace to the establishment of this country, they believed God. I have a book in my office called The Maxims of George Washington. Founding one of the, the first president. That man loved Jesus Christ. He believed in the sovereignty of God. And at no point did the founding fathers ever believe that it would be okay that a lawmaker would say that a man and a, a man, and a man could marry legally in the courts of this country or a woman and a woman. I'm not judging them. But if you, it, there's an abandonment, a reviling, and a revolting. Don't judge them. Wouldn't judge them. Gotta ju I got to judge Aubrey's sin. But all sin has been defined in Scripture. I don't get to make that call. God and only God gets to make that call. And it is not my duty to judge them. But it is, it is certainly my duty not to change the writ of Scripture, not to abandon it, revolt it, and revile against it, because I don't like what it says. It seems unkind to me. Let me tell you something. This book is unkind. 
It is love. And it is God's love. But Isaiah would say, man's righteousness is like a filthy rag under God. And God's word is very unkind to the laws, the rules, the concept of the secular humanity. Because humanity revolts against God. Humanity rebels against God. Humanity doesn't even recognize God. And when they do, they've shaped God into a picture, a little frame, or a, a puppet that makes them feel good about themselves, but is in direct violation of God and His sovereignty and His holiness. And that's why the Scripture says, there'll be many that say to me, Lord, Lord, and He'll say, depart from me. I don't, I don't know you. That's not very kind. But it speaks volumes to the unholiness of men. Some who call themselves Christian. And yet they're living in revolt and abandonment and rebellion. God's people right here. The instruction is don't be afraid. Don't. Don't be afraid. This seems fierce, but don't do it. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has, have planned evil against you. Saying, let us go up against Judah and, and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls. And set the son of Tabel as king in, in the midst of it. Now, listen. See, you could, that is a moment in history over 2,600 years ago. You can make the application today. I've seen it in churches. I've seen coups in churches. I've seen political movements in churches. I've seen people trying to usurp and create and, uh, based upon what they want and how they think and what their rules are. I've seen it in marriages. I've seen it in individuals. I've seen it, and you see it in a, this is a national stage. This is nationally what is affecting God's people. By the way, by the way, some of these enemies were kinfolk. <laughs> these are kinfolks. And the other enemies were enemies that were, they, they shouldn't have existed. And you know why they shouldn't have existed? Because when God says, you go into that promised land, and I tell you what you do. You're my people. This is my command. The holiness that I have, the power that you'll receive from me, you go and you, take, you dismantle that place. You kill every cow. You kill every sheep. You kill every man, woman, and child. That's not very kind, is it? And they didn't do it. They, didn't, they did not do it. You know, it's so funny. Sometimes God gives you and I instruction, not sometime, every time. There's not a thing in your life. You couldn't find it. It doesn't exist. You, if this makes you mad, God bless your soul. But if there's not a thing in your life that the Bible doesn't have an answer for. If you could find any, I'd just come to me because I would be a dude. You, you I think I might faint. I really do. I, I don't know if I'd faint. Something happened. Because there ain't nothing. There you can't, there's not a moment in your life from your first breath to your last breath and anything you'll face that the Bible doesn't have an answer. I don't care what it is. Raising kids, money, marriage, disease, death, war. I don't care what it is. And so, these people didn't have an excuse, nor do you and I have an excuse. But we'll do that. 
God, why are you doing this, God? Why? What's happening here? These enemies, these are our kin folks. These are people we showed mercy to. I want to tell you why. Because some point, somewhere, someplace, your people, a people, God's people, weren't obedient. That's a hard pill to swallow. But I don't like obedience. Well, that's the problem. I don't like what God says about that. I don't like that instruction. I, that instruction doesn't fit with me. So I'm going to revolt, a despise it, a rebel. I don't like if somebody hits me on the cheek, turn the other. I don't like that. I don't like if somebody sues me for my jacket, giving my shirt. I don't like it when the terrible usurp of authority where somebody says, I, you went one mile, the law said, but I need you to go two miles. I don't like that. I don't like it when the scripture says, it's an abomination for a man to lie with a man and a woman to lie with a woman. I don't like it. It doesn't seem very kind. I don't like that when the Bible says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And if that causes you anger, you're revolting, rebelling, and abandoning God. Now, nowhere does in Scripture does it say that you're to be abused. And that you're to, you're to take abuse. Nowhere. That's not what we're talking about. And the Scripture goes on to say, husbands and wives submit to one another. Problems that word submit. We don't like that word. I don't like it when the word says forgive seven times, <laughs> like Peter. Because that'd be a lot. No, no, seventy times seven. I don't like it when it says if you don't forgive, and you won't be forgiven. You and I don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. I don't like it when the scripture says, do not judge. By the same measure you judge, you're going to be judged. I don't like that. Because I'm pretty sure they're more guilty than me. I'm pretty sure my argument would stand up in a case of law, uh, court of law. I'm pretty sure I can make a good case against them. Because after all, they've wronged me. Scripture says you have no case at all. Isn't it better to be wronged? Isn't it better to be defrauded? That's what the scripture says. I think I'm going to revolt against that. I think I'm not going to understand that one. I think I'm going <laughs> to rewrite that one. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. What? Any scheme, any scheme that the devil has against you and I, if you and I are a child of God, saved by God, secured by the Holy Spirit, there's no scheme that'll stand. In Matthew 16, Jesus made a comment about the church, you and I. He said to Peter, he said, I'm going to build a church and assemble people. A called out, the ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I don't know what's going to happen in this country, but I'll tell you what, long after the United States of America fails, if it does indeed fail, there will be a group of people that will never fail and will never know what failure is, and it's the body of Christ. 
It's the church. We are the single most powerful entity and assembly of people in the world. We don't act like it, and we certainly don't look like it when we're abandoning, fearing, reviling, reviling uh, uh, revolting, because we don't like something the Word of God says, or we don't understand it because we choose not to, or it's hard. And so finally, hmm, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now there's this whole series of sermons. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered. So there's no longer a people. Do you, if, you're, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, you know Elijah, after this great victory with the prophets of Baal, he, Jezebel, hmm, said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get you. And he ran. And he was fear. He was so afraid. And God told him, he said, Elijah, there's 7,000. Don't worry. God says to you and I, doesn't matter who the United States, the President of the United States is. Doesn't matter who's sitting over there as the premier of Russia. Doesn't matter who the chairman of China is. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what's going on with all these nuts in the Middle East. And the cancer that's spreading out to the world in the name of Islam doesn't matter. Because it's a cancer. It is an ungodly cancer. Doesn't matter. None of it. Not one of them. No nation, no military, no dictator, no king, no movement, no religion. None. Not one of them. And all their plans shall come to pass. It's not going to happen. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. Now, church, if you hadn't heard anything else I said this morning, you hear what the prophet Isaiah says. If you will not believe, you surely shall not laugh. If you will not believe, you surely shall not laugh. I cannot speak for anybody in this assembly other than myself. In my young Christian walk, so happy to be a Christian. Great story, Matthew 13, the parable. Jesus said, there's those Christians. It's like a guy walking down the road and the seed falls on the side of the road, and some in the thorny places, some in the good soil. And, and he went on to explain, that seems the word of God. And then there's these people that receive it with joy. It's just so wow. You mean my sins are forgiven? You mean that, that God did in fact send a Savior and that he died for me and he loved me and I have the gift of the eternal life? Yeah. Man, give me some of that. That makes me happy. And then a little trouble. The scripture says a little trouble comes along. The children rebel. I lose the job. I don't get the job. The spouse is unfaithful. Go on and on and on. And I don't believe. I become overwhelmed and sad and depressed. 
And it says Satan takes that. But here's the big one. This is the one that worries me about the church today. This is the big one. I see it. And it causes me great concern. He said, there's others that anxiety and the riches of life. Anxiety and wealth. You know what's wrong with the church in America today? I say specifically in America. Anxiety and wealth. I talk regularly to two of the finest ministers I've ever known. One was the head of the Bible department while I was there at Abilene Christian University. One of them is just one of the finest preachers. Uh, he's preached at three different churches over the last 40 years. And I don't say this is a, because uh, this could be taken wrong. The first church he was at, uh, four churches, he was in a little uh, jail in New Mexico. It went from about 50 members to 250. Then he moved to San Antonio and it's about 400 members to 1,500 members. And then he was in Midland, about a 1,500-member church to a 4,000-member church. Then he started his last church in a storefront in Austin out at Cedar Point. 20 members and uh, over 2,000 members within uh, eight years. And he was the guy that I studied the Scripture with, baptized me. We talked regularly. I hope to get him here someday so you can hear some real preaching. I just... And we have talked and talked and talked. And we talk about this topic. He, he, he said, you know, Arby, you know what the single biggest problem with Christianity in America today is? He said, it's anxiety and wealth. He said, and it's, it's just in the last really 10 years, uh, uh, Americans, it started before then. We started to accrue great wealth. We're wealthier than any generation that's ever lived before us. You know, when uh, Corey Younger was young, uh, when they were young, they had a kerosene refrigerator. And, and you had to have ice brought to you. Anybody here had to butcher hogs for the food that they would eat? Raise a garden because you had to raise a garden. Wasn't a luxury. Chickens. Not that you had a fancy in-house because you needed those chickens. Outhouse. One car. Mama stayed home and took care of the kids. Well, we got all this great stuff going on, don't we? We got feminism. Anti-biblical. It's certainly not biblical. Greatest, the greatest feminist in the world was Jesus Christ. But what's being displayed on America is not, not biblical pro-women. It's not. It's anti-woman. And it's disguised as pro-woman, but it's anti-woman. Divorce. 1963, since then, half of all marriages end in divorce. We go on and on and on. But we got wealth. Oh, we got wealth. We used to have one car. Now we got two or three or four cars. We just got, and we got expendable money. Churches, you in Abilene, Texas, Wednesday night was off limits for public schools. Off limits. Sunday was off limits. Till about eight, nine years ago. There wasn't going to be any sporting or school events going on on a Wednesday or Sunday. 
You know, people will actually say that I don't have to go to church to be saved or be a Christian. If you can find that in the Bible, you give me the book, chapter, and verse because it doesn't exist. That is a, that is a ungodly, ungodly. And it comes from what, we'll even tell, you don't have to go to church to be saved. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Would you say that if Jesus Christ was standing right in the very front of you? You wouldn't. And if you would, you, God bless you. Oh, Lord. But we got so much convenience. It's easy. We got vehicles that are, they, man, people used to drive 20 miles to church. Man, it's great. I love it. We got people coming from Franklin and College Station. But you know, it hadn't been that long ago. You said people wouldn't, we could just go in. We got video cameras in the cars. We got cruise control. We got air We got expendable cash because mom and dad are so anxious. They're both working 50 hours a week because we got to have that extra money and we need it and we got to go and maybe we're going to plan a cruise and a vacation. And we do. We don't eat supper together anymore. We sit in front of a TV screen. And I'm just telling you, this is a hard fact thing to deal with, but it's true. And then church becomes a convenience or a calendar date, maybe. And God intended you and I to come and worship Him. And the Scripture says in Hebrews 10, 24, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. Now, you're going to revolt against that? You're going to rebel? You're going to create your own doctrinal stance on that? Could you do it before God? Because you can't. And if you would, oh my God. Isaiah wasn't playing. Isaiah wasn't wasting his time. He wasn't wasting God's time. I think pulpits are full of preachers preaching convenient messages, cultural messages. And the reality is it's revolt. It's abandoned. It's rebellion. I'm more worried about pleasing people than pleasing God. I'm more worried about my personal comfort. And parents, every message you send, every, every message you live is a message you send. We should all be living for one moment and only one. You shouldn't be living for any retirement. You shouldn't be living for any uh, future vacation. You shouldn't be living for any future. You and I should only be living for one thing. And that is when the trumpet sounds. It's going to sound. What does your life look like? Does it look like you're living for something other than the trumpet to sound? And why? My preacher friend says it's because of anxiety and wealth. It's the difference between a country that was forged in the Judeo-Christian truths and principles of, Bible, of the Bible and the people that forged forward and they moved west and they built churches and, and they debated each other and they studied the word and the churches were full. The difference is wealth and the anxiety. I got more money. Money makes me anxious. And what suffers? You should be challenged by this. Because when Isaiah stood before this king of Judah, talking about the national crisis, he'd already addressed rebellion, revolt, abandonment. 
And so what's happening now? You're living in fear. You're anxious. You're a nation divided. Paul said, we have been made more than conquerors. Romans in chapter 8. Conquerors are waiting for the trumpet. Conquerors are coming to church and worshiping God. Conquerors are reading the Bible with their kids. Conquerors are on their knees praying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We're so grateful to be called your children. Father, I pray that any area of our life that we're revolting and we're abandoning you and we're rebelling to you, that, that, that you would change in our heart, that you would crush whatever it is in our heart, whatever it is, apathy or whatever, something, anything, Father, anxiety, fear, wealth. I just pray that you would remove it. I ask for the forgiveness of your sins. I ask daily, regularly. And Father, I thank you for the great love that you have for us. And I know it's true because of your Son. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.